as we've been saying, we have been really stubbornly celebrating and clinging to the resurrection. Jesus' victory over sin, death, the world, the flesh, the devil. His victory becomes ours. Resurrection means we no longer have need to fear death or sin or decay. They just don't define us anymore in the ways that they did. So during Eastertide, you've probably noticed this, our lectionary often highlights uh, certain resurrection stories, uh, the risen Lord interacting with the disciples. And in these stories, Jesus, I love this, he offers these deeper invitations to follow him. So discipleship continues after resurrection, teaching continues, learning, spiritual growth, those all continue with the disciples. And in those resurrection stories, we're reminded that the truths of the resurrection matter right now. In other words, they matter in the present. We work these things out in real time. As the old hymn says, because he lives, and it goes on to say several things, because he lives. But what I want the point I want to make is because he lives, because his resurrection power is now at work in me, in you, in us, right now. It matters right now. Not just for the great by and by, not just for the great hereafter and the new heaven and the new earth. Resurrection shapes the entirety of our lives beginning to end. So it's not just all future oriented. It matters right now. So today is Good Shepherd Sunday. It's always the fourth Sunday in our calendar of Eastertide. And, you know, even if you didn't know that, uh, it's kind of hard to miss when you see Psalm 23 read, when you see John 10, Stephen just read. Together in one place, you're kind of like, wait, what's going on here? There's a strong shepherd theme. Yeah, it's Good Shepherd Sunday. Uh, there are other places in Scripture where God is described as a shepherd. It really is a consistent and abiding theme in Scripture. So it's not just these few little places. It's peppered throughout the Old Testament in the prophets. It's in Ezekiel. It's strong in Isaiah. We find it in Numbers and in Micah, Jeremiah. We find it in the Psalms, obviously. It's in the New Testament too, Revelation, Gospels all over the place, 1 Peter. So my question is always this, you know, why does God choose this image, shepherd? Why does he choose that to describe himself? Why that choice? As a king, why take the low road? There's no great nobility in being a shepherd in the ancient Near East, not at all. It's a very common, I mean, you're a common laborer if you're a shepherd, not unlike a carpenter. I think perhaps it's just because it's very incarnational. I think it's part of Jesus's point, as we'll soon see in John 10 and uh, Psalm 23. So what I'm going to encourage you to do is follow the imagery really closely um, in these two passages because they tell the story. And I'm going to delve really deeply into the images and, and just sort of the background of what they mean to that ancient audience. Because I don't know about you. I don't know any shepherds. That's not my life. I don't have a strong agricultural tie to anything. So I'm going to try to bring those home to us uh, and bring those images alive, hopefully. So let me first do this. Let me frame these passages um, for us. Centuries before Jesus is born, Moses prays a certain prayer and he asks the Lord for a shepherd. I love this. He asked the Lord for a shepherd over Israel. This is Numbers 27, 16 and 17. Let me read them to you. It's a prayer. May the Lord, the God of the spirits of all mankind, anoint a man, appoint a man, pardon me, over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in, so the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. 
How about that? Um, Moses' prayer is obviously answered with the coming of Christ. Pay attention closely. This language of coming and going, did you hear that? This, this language of, of leading and following, uh, those are really key in us interpreting John 10, which is where we're going to go first and leapfrog to Psalm 23. So in our John 10 passage, beginning there, uh, we need to know who Jesus is speaking to, always key. His audience here, the Pharisees, verse 1, we find them out. These are the supposed, the assumed shepherds of Israel. These are supposed to be her trusted pastors. But as we find out by listening to Jesus, they're failing in this holy task. So this is a really pointed critique uh, of their leadership, their failure to watch out for Israel, to care for Israel. So what Jesus does, as he often does, is he gives us a picture of what this looks like. So he gives us a picture of shepherd and sheep. And again, I love this. It's a very earthy, mundane, everyday life picture that this original audience could immediately connect to. Something that was part of their everyday life if you lived in a small village. So here's the picture he's giving. Let me, let me sort of spell it out for us. The setting, it's a small village, average place in the ancient Near East in Palestine. And it is a small village with a sheep pen and a gate at that sheep pen. This is like the first six verses of that. Let me give you some background. Most villages um, composed of several families, they owned a few sheep and they kept it in this, like a small uh, walled courtyard. That's the sheep pen Jesus is talking about here. Uh, several households, would they would have a shepherd to look after their sheep kind of collectively. And this was often a trusted son or a trusted daughter of one of the families. If that was an option, they'd hire someone, but that was not ideal because, you know, this person had no sense of ownership of these are their sheep. So um, these young men and young women, which really were adolescents, maybe a little younger, these were the shepherds of their day and age. So it might be a different gender than you thought, right? Uh, probably younger than many of us imagine. Think of young David before he's anointed king. He's a boy. So these are the shepherds. This is the picture of what Jesus is describing. So here would be, here was the protocol for how they would care for the sheep. Each morning, you needed to take the sheep out into the open country, out into the pastures. What the shepherd would do, he or she would move from house to house. And because the gatekeepers knew him or her, they opened the gate. And the shepherd calls out the sheep, and the sheep know the shepherd's voice, and they follow him or her. Okay? So the walls of those courtyard, the sheep pen, which Jesus is describing here, they're usually about six, seven feet high. So if you're a thief, which Jesus does describe here, what you'd have to do is, is climb the walls to get it. You'd shimmy over. But even if you could get in there and force the gate open to try to, you know, pick up some sheep, free sheep, but sheep generally don't follow a stranger. They, in fact, are scared and they'll run away from his voice. So here's the point, already just very clear what Christ is describing. The real shepherd, true shepherd, is recognized by that, that gatekeeper, that doorkeeper, and is allowed entry. And the sheep know him or her. They know the shepherd. So already, what I want us to hear here is this very intimate level of trust between sheep and shepherd. It's not unlike a parent and a child relationship, but I think even more so. Uh, these sheep, utterly dependent for their covering, for their provision on the shepherd. They listen for the true shepherd's voice. 
and they follow him or her. So if your shepherd's a good one, you're a sheep, you're in good shape. That's a very good thing. Uh, if you don't have a good shepherd, uh, the results could be disastrous. So the good shepherd, listen to the language, leads the sheep out. And what I mean by this, there's an observation I think to be made here. He doesn't drive them out by the sheep pen. He doesn't get in there and beat them from behind. Jesus says he calls them out by name. Love this. There's actually good evidence that ancient Near Eastern shepherds did know their sheep by name. So the shepherd leads them by going ahead of them, by calling them out by name. So again, this is a picture of intimacy, trust. Uh, I would say kindness. The sheep are known to him, every single one of them by name. But, and this sort of interrupts our story, verse six, they, the Pharisees, did not understand this. Okay, contrast. Jesus forever using contrast, certainly here. So there's the good shepherd, okay? There's the one who heals, who sacrifices, who watches over the flock versus false shepherds who actually, Jesus calls them thieves and robbers. So he's more than implying, more than insinuating that the Pharisees are the thieves and the robbers described here. These are the ones prophesied against in Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah 23. So there's a, we see a very strong fierceness in Jesus here, which continues to play out. So towards the end of our passage, verses 7 to 10, there's a setting and a scene change, if you're sort of attuned to this. We, we're leaving the village. We're leaving the sheep pen. The good shepherd's leading them out. And where are we going? We're headed into open, the open country, out into open pasture, some translations say. Uh, this is where the shepherd is leading the flock. This is an expansive place. And the whole point is this is where they can have food and drink. So he's leading them out to be fed and to drink. And Jesus brings it all home now. He come, lands really hard. I tell you the truth. I am the door for the sheep. I am the door for the sheep. Jesus says seven great I am's in John. They're all incredibly important because they're all about his identity and who he is. And he makes it even stronger by saying, I tell you the truth. Older translations, verily, verily. This, that means it's incredibly important when he says this. I tell you the truth. I'm the door for the sheep. Significance. Well, Jesus is not only the good shepherd, which he will speak of later, in John 10, right after this passage, but he identifies himself as the door. Now let's think through this. What does that mean? That means he is the threshold into life. He is the gateway into the open country. He's the way out to the pastures where food and water are. So whoever enters through me, the gate or the door, Jesus says, will be saved. That's verse nine. So they'll go in, they'll come out, They'll find pasture. Folks, this is a picture of freedom, it is a picture of life, a picture of provision, and a picture of protection. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Another big I am. This is Jesus, the Good Shepherd. In contrast to the thieves and the robbers, those shepherds of Israel who failed to care for Israel. So Jesus. He indicts the Pharisees here for taking advantage of the flock. And his words still stand, I find, as a warning to false shepherds who, who lead the people of God astray, who don't care for them. 
shepherds who don't care for them, right? They don't look out for them. They're not willing to lay down their life for their flocks. They won't defend their flocks against the wolves that come. True shepherds are not guided by self-preservation, period. That is what Jesus describes. This is a sober and a good reminder, I think, for anyone in pastoral work on any level. Jesus calls uh, the pastors of his church to mimic his example, to serve his church, to love his flock, to guard his sheep with service and sacrifice. Uh, And I think that's true for everyone in pastoral work. So I'm always going back to this picture of Jesus as the good shepherd um, to remind myself of what my call is and what my task is within the body. So Jesus is saying, folks, I'm not like them. I'm not like these thieves and robbers. Uh, They come, and he says, to steal, kill, and destroy. Strong language, yes. They come to harm those and to take advantage of those whom they've been called to serve and protect. And rather, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and life to the full. Folks, that sounds like resurrection life to me. Dead on. And Jesus is going to go on in verses 11 to 18, and that's where he'll explicitly describe himself as the good shepherd. So he kind of builds upon that. Okay? So when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, later on in John, right after this, any Jew, any Jew with an earshot would know that he is alluding to things like Psalm 23. Absolutely. Or that prayer of Moses I read you at the beginning in Numbers 27 or any of those other Old Testament references. Those Old Testament passages were shorthand for God's my shepherd and we're the sheep. Now, this must have infuriated the Pharisees. Very incendiary, blasphemous words to their ears because Jesus is identifying himself with God. (laughs) I'm the shepherd. Wait a minute, God's the shepherd. That means you're, uh uh-huh, that's right. That's what it means. So, When Jesus is saying good shepherd, immediately everyone's minds, they're going back to the Old Testament. They're going to Psalm 23 without a doubt. So I want us to listen to Psalm 23. We're going to just go through it briefly, beginning to end. I want you to hear how this fills out the picture of the good shepherd that Jesus is painting of himself in John 10. We find out the good shepherd is part uh, wilderness guide. We find out part field medic, part protector, and in the end, part host. Pretty incredible. So Psalm 23 begins with those familiar words. The Lord is my shepherd. Words of belonging, of intimacy, of being known by him, being known by name. Okay. Uh, and the shepherd lives with us, not aloof from us, with us. Folks, that's Jesus. <laughs> that's Jesus. This shepherd leads me to green pastures, leads me to resting places with quiet waters. Again, a picture of a shepherd who provides for me. Food and water, in other words, essentials in a very harsh and forgiving desert environment. Uh, Survival depends on having food and water when you live in the desert. So the good shepherd knows where to look. He knows where to find food and water. Uh, You can't wander about in the desert just kind of hoping you'll find a watering hole. You can't do that. You need a shepherd who knows the area and the terrain. That's Jesus, okay? This shepherd refreshes my soul, leads me 
by the right paths or do to the right paths. Uh, the good shepherd's heart is to heal, restore, give rest, but he also knows how to lead us. This is that right paths language. In other words, he knows the terrain. Good shepherd, this is where he's like a seasoned wilderness guide. There's expertise, there's experience here, there's know-how. So we can rest in that. We can follow that. We don't have to worry. He's our sufficiency and our portion. That, folks, that's Jesus, the good shepherd. Even in the darkest valley, that famous line, the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. Now, the reality is we're going to encounter both open pastures and dark valleys in our lives. We are. The good shepherd is beside us, standing with us in our afflictions and our calamities and all these trials. So the good shepherd doesn't stand aloof. He lives his life with the sheep. So when your life's falling apart, guess what? The good shepherd, not distant. Good shepherd is also not a hired hand who has a tendency to bolt when things go south and the wolves surround the flock, right? No, no. The good shepherd stays, he draws near still, and he comes to find us when we're lost. Folks, that's Jesus, the good shepherd. Says uh, his rod and his staff are comfort to me. You ever thought about what that means exactly? What does that mean? Well, there are two tools of the trade if you are a shepherd in the ancient Near East, and it is, guess what? Staff and rod. Staff is the one we are probably most familiar with. It's that long stick, looks like a walking stick. You'd use it to walk. You'd use it to guide the flock, maybe give them a tap on the behind when they're straying away, control the direction of the flock. That's the staff. What's the rod? The rod is a weapon. It's like a cudgel. It's like a mini bat. Think of a, a, a thick-weighted stick, uh, weighted at the end. So here's what I find very interesting. Think of all the pictures you've seen of Jesus as the good shepherd, you know, holding a sheep or something. Many of those. Usually, uh, it takes a lot of effort. Try to find a picture of Jesus as the good shepherd where he, where he doesn't have just the staff. Usually it's Jesus, sheep, staff. Very placid, very chill, right? But folks, this is a tremendous disturbance, disservice to the fullness of God's character as the good shepherd. Why do I say that? Well, typically the picture is this. It's, it's typically a white Jesus, beautiful, blue-eyed, flowing golden locks Jesus, right? Uh, holding a sweet little lamb, again, in this very placid scene. I mean, for me, I call him the peace-loving hippie Jesus. I mean, that's what he looks like to me. Folks, this is a shepherd with no grit at all. Can this guy take on a wolf? You're going to trust him to take on a wolf and defeat him and defeat and defend the flock? Can this guy get his hands dirty? Can he really? Is he formidable? Not in those pictures, he's not. Here's the picture in scripture in Psalm 23. The good shepherd is armed. <laughs> He's skilled and he is formidable. He can kill wolves. He can defend the flock because he has the rod. And he's also wise, trustworthy to guide us where we need to go. That's the staff. Folks, that's Jesus. Kind, tender, wise, and fierce and formidable. Now, this good shepherd makes sure, makes darn sure that we arrive home safe and sound. 
In other words, those open pastures do lead somewhere. That's what the final two verses in Psalm 23 are all about. It's a picture of homecoming. We enter the house of the Lord. The good shepherd's job is to deliver us there safe and sound. Listen to the welcome that's set before us. Listen to this. So this is really brief. I could delve into this sacramentally and it's beautiful, but I want to be brief. He prepares a table before us. There's a feast to refresh us. He anoints us with oil. This is a very festive, hospitable act, something you do when you receive your guests. It's a, it's a refreshing thing to offer them, anoint, to anoint them with oil. And he fills our cup <clears throat> to overflowing. In other words, this is sort of an embarrassingly extravagant provision. It's more than we need. I'm going to let Eugene Peterson speak to us here. This is the message, those last two verses. You served me a six-course dinner. You revive my drooping head. My cup brims with blessing. Your beauty and love, they chase after me every day of my life. I'm back home in the house of God for the rest of my life. Beautiful. So the good shepherd makes certain we arrive safely at home. And I'm using that with a capital H. Where we are greeted by the warmest of receptions. Where we are greeted by the sweetest of fellowship and where we have an abundant eternal feast set before us. This is God playing the role of host when we arrive, which he loves to do. Folks, to be God's guest is to be more than just an acquaintance. We're known by name. No, we're not just invited in for a day. It is to live with him. It is to be known by him, and it is to be home, capital H. So that's where Jesus, the good shepherd, leads us calling us by name, opening the door and the gate, leading us into those open pastures, into life. And in fact, as he says, he's the gate out of the sheep pen, which also happens to be the door that opens inward into the father's house. Same door, same door. Without resurrection, the gate into the open country and its green pastures remain locked to us. Without resurrection, the door to the Father's house remains closed to us. So I don't know about you, but this good shepherd, uh, this is someone I can trust. He is a great comfort to me, certainly in times like this. Who among us doesn't need this kind of comfort uh, and assurance in these threadbare and difficult days of the coronavirus, right? I find this picture that Jesus paints and that Psalm 23 paints, it's alluring and it's just easy to sort of sink right into it and inhabit it. But you knew there's a but there. There is. There is an inherent problem here. Human beings generally, if we think about it, don't like being sheep much less being compared with them because it's not a compliment in scripture. <laughs> it's something, you know, if we think much about, we, perhaps we want to take offense at. But if we claim Jesus as our good shepherd, that also means we are accepting the truth that we're a flock of sheep. You can't have one without the other. You can't say, oh, yes, Jesus, good shepherd. Yes, you're that and deny that you're a 
sheep of his flock. It just doesn't work that way. So if we claim Jesus as good shepherd, it means we're acknowledging that we're a sheep and part of his flock, which means a few things. Sheep aren't too bright. They're not the sharpest tool in the shed. Sheep are prone to biting their shepherds. <laughs> They're unruly. They can be skittish. They can be easily scared. Sometimes we often are often led kicking and screaming. So if we're going to follow this good shepherd, it means we have some things to lay down. It means there's some sins we have to lay down. Let me give you some examples. We have to lay down our pride. We have to lay down our pride. We have to lay down our self-sufficiency. We have to lay down our inordinate love of independence, which Americans have a particular love for. We have to lay down our obsession with being in control and feeling strong. We have to lay those down. Folks, there's no other way to say it. Those are human idols because we hate to feel weak and we hate to feel out of control, period. I'm the captain of my own destiny. I want to feel that. I want to be that, but guess what? Sheep are vulnerable and needful little creatures just like human beings are. When you think on this, in the season we've been in for, what, 50-some days, what have you, don't you feel your vulnerability? Don't you feel your need and your lack of control more during this season, more than usual, more than is probably comfortable for you? I want to more than suggest to you that is a hidden gift from God. <laughs> Maybe it's not even hidden. It's right there. It is God's invitation to us to lean on him, to acknowledge our creatureliness, our sheepfulness, if you will, to acknowledge our dependence without shame. Right? We need the good shepherd right now more than we know. And we can trust him, this good shepherd. So the heart of the Good Shepherd, as I said earlier before, is to lead us out into open pastures, these vast places. And he calls us by name into those places. So I have to wonder for each of us, where's the Good Shepherd calling you right now? Where's he calling you? Where's he calling you to lay aside your own agenda, right? To follow him instead, right? Uh, what journey of the heart is God calling you to undertake right now? Some questions. Jesus, the good shepherd, came to give us life and life to the full. Folks, that's resurrection life. That is the language. That's what we're stubbornly celebrating, what we're clinging to, and what we are counting on, especially right now. So I pray that we'd follow his voice and trust all, trust all the more in these days, and that we would follow God's invitation in the midst of our weakness. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.